Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for season three of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the History of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 22, Escaping Social Isolation with a Miraculous Journey to the 1420s. Welcome to the History of the Netherlands. If you are listening to this episode at time of release in March 2020, then you, much like us, are probably living through a very strange moment of your life in so-called social isolation. We here in the Netherlands have been asked to help protect the lives of ourselves, our families, our friends, our neighbours, our parents, grandparents, doctors, nurses, supermarket workers from a pandemic of a new coronavirus that threatens to overwhelm medical systems worldwide. To do this solemn and important work, we are required to do nothing. That's right. We, much like we hope yourself, have been asked to stay home, work from home if possible, and only leave the house when absolutely necessary. If you are listening to this at some point in the future, say in 20 years' time, then hooray! The world didn't end. And what we are doing right now may seem absolutely bizarre in hindsight, but just know that we saved your asses by staying inside and watching Netflix for a few months. It might sound ridiculous, but it's actually really, really hard work, and you should be grateful, you little punks. But this episode is mostly for those of you going through self-enforced or mandatory quarantine with us contemporaneously. We thought it would be a treat to escape from the tedium and anxiety-laced atmosphere of the current day by going on an imaginary journey to a time which was a little less tedious, but still very anxiety-laced, and that was Holland in the 1420s. The last few episodes have been very heavy on politics and intrigue, dates, names, more Johns than you can poke a stick at, and it's been great, we've loved it. But as life has so vividly reminded us in the last few weeks, as much as we like to imagine that those at the top of the social and political ladders, the kings, queens, counts, dukes, politicians, merchants, and bankers, are the people who drive history onwards, it is actually everyday people that truly live and experience most of what happens in history, whether or not their names go in the history books, or their bored-at-home TikTok video goes viral, uh, becomes a hit or not. This episode, we intend to pay homage to the ground-level experiences of Dutch late medieval history through a historical fictional account of the experiences of a young lad from Holland living through the Hook and Cod Wars and moving to Amsterdam in around 1420. It's in a fairly different style to what you're used to, but if you don't like it as much, then hey, what else is there to do? So, sit back, relax, and together we shall escape the troubles of the current day by venturing off into a past which, despite how sucky everything might seem right now, was still definitely much worse. You are a young man from Kenemerland, the rural area in the west of Holland, close to the dunes which protect the land here from the turbulent North Sea. Your family are farmers, and as the harvest time of 1418 approaches, it has become clear that there is going to be not enough food and too many mouths to feed. Your family has only a meager few soggy acres of land on which to work, and even those small pieces are getting boggier and damper as the peat dries and the land sinks under the water. 
as the youngest of three brothers, you are now surplus to requirements. So your best option is to head to a town and find an apprenticeship in some trade, like smithery or carpentry. But you are also a child of strong faith, and thanks to a semi-monastic order, the Brethren of the Common Life, which set up a small school in a nearby village, you are reasonably educated for a commoner, skilled in your letters. For some years, you had been of the mind to make a pilgrimage when old enough, and what spoke to your heart and soul was to go to the city of Amstelradam, where not even a century prior a miracle had occurred. A holy sacrament had defied the heat of fire and was now enshrined for worshippers to pay homage at. You decide to become one of those worshippers. In addition to this, Amstelradam is a bustling town, and perhaps you can also find work or an apprenticeship there. So in August 1418, you pack a few rations into your satchel, some dried sausage, nuts, and cheese, alongside a thick fur that your mother has given you, and some coins in a purse that her and your father have saved for this moment. Armed with just these few possessions, one fresh late summer morning, you say your goodbyes to your family, you wipe your mother's tears from her cheek, take a deep breath of the coolish air, and leave their small farmstead to head out into the world. This is perhaps not the best time to be a young person making a pilgrimage and seeking opportunity in the northern low countries. Your parents, priests, and teachers had all warned you of the dangers that traveling through the countryside could entail. For decades, war has bubbled below the surface across the Low Countries and has been periodically erupting. War in Liège, war between Helders and Brabant, and now war in Holland, as Jacqueline of Bavaria and her uncle John of Bavaria battle it out for power over that territory. You are a young boy with no city rights, wandering across war-torn domains. This is risky business. You could be robbed, killed, or even forced into the army of some ruler or another, and nobody who cares about you will ever know. So as you leave your farm, it is with caution in your heart. You keep away from towns, walking along the dikes that protect the polders of farmland. In the evening, you search for the least boggy spot you can find, a small copse of trees where you find some cover. After saying your prayers, you nestle down covered by your fur and try to sleep. You carry on like this for two days, coming across only the occasional farmer. On the morning of the third day, you find yourself close to the village of Sloten, where you will join what has become known as the Heilige Weg, or Holy Way. It is a road that will lead you all the way to Amstel Redam. You take your time as you wander, absorbing everything that you see. Granted, this is mainly cows and the occasional sheep, on your right at least. They graze and rest on countless flat parcels of land divided by hand-dug canals. To your left runs the waterway that you are following. It is reasonably warm and the sun sits, supervising over the low blue sky that is dotted by small white clouds. You watch as a boat sails gently down the long straight waterway, loaded with vegetables and cheese heading towards the markets of Amstelradam. You are enjoying the sunshine when you start to come across other pilgrims. You try to talk to them, but they babble nonsense, and you realize that they are from somewhere strange and foreign to you. You come across another, an old man, who speaks much the same language as you, but in an entirely different way. You soon give up and decide to just gesture to others when you see them, to look as pious as you can, and to just carry on. Nonetheless, you believe you sense the spirit of Christ within all. Just past Sloten, you begin to feel the call of nature. You leave the road when you find a small tree-covered area, which you head into. Having found a spot that feels relatively private from the sight of others walking the road, you unfasten your breeches and are in the process of pulling them and your undergarments down when you hear voices approaching from the other direction from deeper within the trees. You quickly start to hitch up your stockings and your brookers and look up just in time to see two soldiers wearing grey caps 
with their daggers prominently displayed from their girdles, come into view. One of them carries a crudely pointed pike, and the other an axe on his back. They see you stand up, and one of them shouts for you to stay where you are, but you are terrified and make to run. However, your pants are not yet fully up, and you trip on one of the cords, causing you to fall ignominiously flat on your face. Before you can get up, you feel the sharp point of a pike pressed threateningly into your lower back, and a gruff voice mutters, Try not to crap yourself. You're nicked. This is followed immediately by a sudden and jarring pain on the back of your head, and then everything goes to black. It's March 1420. It has been over a year now since you were captured by the COD soldiers whilst trying to have a poo next to the Holy Way. They had knocked you unconscious and taken you back to their camp. Their captain had interrogated you, forcefully insisting that you were a spy for Jacqueline of Bavaria. Through pain and torment, you finally managed to convince him otherwise. You told him you can read and proved it when he thrust a list of inventory in front of you. This skill is rather unusual for a farmer's son. He asked in wonder how you had learned letters and you told him the truth, that the brethren of the common good, laymen who formed communities committed to simple devotion to Christ and worldly education, had set up a school recently near your home. The brothers had taught you to read. From that point, the captain became more trusting of you and you began to have an almost friendly relationship with him. Over time, you came to impress him more and more, and he finally accepted that you were no spy. But that did not mean that you were free to continue your pilgrimage. No, this is war, and each side needs men to fight. You are young and able and have unique capabilities. When you asked the captain if you could leave one day, he laughed and shook his head. No, he told you, you are with us now. From that day on, you have been in the service of Lord John of Bavaria, a member in a band of COD soldiers. You'd spent the next few months moving through the countryside of Holland. Sometimes you were ordered to commit relatively small military acts, like stealing cows from the farmlands outside of Hook Cities and setting fire to the farmhouses. Having grown up on a farm just like the ones you are destroying, you know that the people whose homes you are raising really have nothing to do with this conflict between Duke John and Lady Jacqueline. Often you can't help but imagine your parents and siblings having to endure this, and always have to force those thoughts out of your mind. You console yourself by remembering that they might be just regular people trying their best to survive and eke out a living in this tough and difficult world, but this is war, and they have chosen the truly evil side, the hooks. In your experience, the Hooks are of the devil himself, a group of treacherous murderers. This is what you strive to keep present in your mind whenever you and your new brothers leave a wailing orphan behind for the wolves or a widow destitute or people's bodies and meager belongings reduced to ash and embers on the soggy ground. You know the Hooks have committed far worse, and you soldiers have to make them pay. If you don't, you will likely be caught yourself and subjected to their cruelty. All too often you have seen what this means, what might happen if the hooks catch up to you or anyone they think is a cod. Several times you have come across campsites where piles of debris are smattered with the cold stiffened bodies of men, their necks slit open and their grey hats, the symbol of your cod faction, stuffed into their dead mouths. You have become close to the men you are fighting with. They are your brothers now. And to look at such compatriots brought to their demise in such a way makes your blood boil. In this war, revenge has become a powerful driving force, and it has driven you to loyalty. You may have been forced into it, but you are now fully a cod, and you wear your grey hat proudly. But luckily for you, Duke John and your COD faction seem to be winning this war. A string of military victories in 1419 forced negotiations at Valdrichum, in which Lady Jacqueline and her husband, the Duke of Brabant, must accept your lord as the joint ruler of Holland for the next five years. Duke John becomes so powerful now in Holland that he is even able to trample all over the privileges of major towns, such as Amstelredam 
and force hook aldermen, mayors and sheriffs out of office to be replaced by cod men of his own choosing. When you are told one afternoon that your military service has been completed and you are free to choose where to go, you thus decide that your safest bet is to continue towards your original destination and go to Amstelredam. At least there you will be surrounded by other cods like yourself. But even more importantly, you think to yourself, in Amstelredam you will finally be able to complete your pilgrimage, to beg forgiveness for the sins you have committed, especially in the last year. Completing your pilgrimage will go a long way to your forgiveness being granted. You leave the army camp in early spring and head north once more. The celebration day for the miracle of Amstelredam is fast approaching and you wish to complete your pilgrimage at the same time. You feel a completely different person, grown up and experienced, compared to the last time you were heading in this direction by yourself. You also have contacts now, and have managed to arrange passage on a boat up the Bordenvetering, one of the drainage canals dug to allow the farmland polders around Amstelrodam to stay dry. This waterway is the primary fashion that farmers bring their goods to market in the town. As you sit on the barge, you take note of how many other vessels there are, and you wonder at the size of the markets that you will see in this big town. You smell Amstelradam before you see it. Coming up the Bordervatering, the dank and woody smell of hundreds of hearths burning vast quantities of peat is carried by the wind into your nostrils. As you get closer and closer to town, to the point where you begin to see the cluster of pointed wooden houses and the steeples of a few churches rising from the flat horizon, you begin to also smell smoke from burning hot forges, and can hear the racket of smith's hammers striking iron. You can hear the sound of people talking, shouting, laughing, of kids and animals bleating and shrieking. Those sounds, however are soon overwhelmed by another, more dominant, more urgent, and more important, one that holds the background together. It is the clamour of church bells, calling out from those steeples that now strikes your ears, and remains constant. They are calling to you. Once you get to the entrance of the city where the Bordervatering crosses the Heilige Weg, the boat must stop and tie up. Here, the Bordervatering empties into the Amstel via a slouse known as Het Spau. The farmer begins to offload his foodstuffs with the help of some local lads who have been awaiting his arrival. They will take it to the people in the market to be sold. It is in this way that Amstelredam is supplied with foodstuff every day, but here your journey with him comes to an end. You give a wave of thanks to the farmer for giving you the ride into town and approach the gate to enter the city yourself. This gate is called the Bindvaker Port. It's more of a wooden fence than anything else, but you still need to get through it before you are properly in the town limits. On the other side, just beyond Hetzpau, is the street where you will find the Heilige Stede, the holy chapel built on the site where the miracle took place. That is where your pilgrimage will end. But first you must get into town and... Judging by the busyness and the late hour, you should find somewhere to sleep and maybe complete your pilgrimage in the morning. It is very busy at the gate because so many other pilgrims are also entering the town. You can't help but notice that some of them appear to be a little bit too merry and are slurring their words, burping and stumbling a little as they wait their turn to enter the town. It seems as though they might be here for less pious reasons than yourself, but at least they are also making the effort. At the gate, a porter asks what business you have in town, and you excitedly tell him you are completing the holy pilgrimage. His indifference is stark compared to your enthusiasm, but you reckon he must get a hundred such pilgrims a day, based on the size of the queue. He mutters something and steps aside, letting you pass. You walk under the wooden rampart and into a whole new world. You have done it, finally made it to Amstelradam. Now standing along the quay of Hetzpau, you marvel at what is the busiest place you have ever seen. There are all kinds of people and animals shuffling along, 
coming in and out of the main street, a former dike built to keep the water away from this very muddy and damp town. There are countless men and women hurrying around or standing chatting, and young boys are herding livestock up towards the market further down the street at the main square called the Plaza. But you also notice that there are hundreds of nuns and monks and priests moving in and out and among the crowd, not to mention all the fellow pilgrims coming into the city. You register that the bells are tolling again, or perhaps they never stopped. Certainly the atmosphere tells you that this is indeed a celebratory time. You join the throng moving up the dike. The buildings lining it are all made of wood with mostly thatched roofs, through which you can see smoke from the hearths within wafting out. Outside the doors of the houses, you can see scattered loose straw on the muddy clay ground, remnants from the thresh thrown on the floors within to keep them from getting too muddy. Every now and then, there is somebody tending a stove outside one of the houses and numerous children flitting in and out between people, animals, houses and alleyways. You take a moment to look up at the big wooden pointed houses. Their lofts seem to take up the top third of each building, and the biggest houses mostly ascend into a pointy top. Most of the steep roofs are lined with the thick thatch, but you do see a few with more expensive wooden or even clay shingles. There are also more modest shacks. You see more of them down the little alleyways that run off the street you are walking down. You come across a massive, beautiful building, taller than most, half-timbered and with the great beams of its rafters extending slightly out over the street. From their ends hang decorated flower pots. The front door is a great oak one with carved biblical depictions in each corner and a sign next to it telling you that this is the guest house of the Holy Sacrament. This is what you are looking for. As somebody told you once, that they provide boarding for newly arrived pilgrims. You push open the great oak door enter into the candle-lit foyer and find a monk in attendance. You ask if he has a room. He looks you up and down and laughs, shaking his head. Good luck finding easy accommodation in this city, he tells you, especially at this time. Though you're welcome to stay in the plague house if you wish. He gestures behind him. You quickly shake your head in horror, thank him and stumble back out into the street and the fading sunshine. Well, that didn't go as planned. It's getting darker, and a slight worry goes through you. What if you can't find a place to sleep? Given the sacredness of the week, the town is extremely busy. As you walk down the street, there are a few Herberger inns, but each one gives you the same reaction as the monk. You worry even more. But then finally, when you are ready to give up, you find one where, to your great relief, you are told that there is a hammock that you can use in a corner of the loft. The price is absolutely ridiculous, but you have little choice, and so you hand over the coins, go and leave your few belongings up there, and return downstairs to drink some beer. It's been a long and rather overwhelming day, and you are parched after walking through the crowds and the smoky street. You sit down in the herberg at a table near the counter and make yourself comfortable, looking around, taking it all in. The dark oak room is crowded and smoky. You see people in different styles of clothing, so you figure many of them are also travellers. A couple of short, dark-haired men are seated nearby, and although you can hear them talk, you have no idea which language they are doing it in. In the corner of the room, a group of these young men and two ladies are gathered around a table, looking comfortable, relaxed. The men are smoking pipes and rolling dice while the ladies chat excitedly with each other, occasionally mocking the lads and laughing uproariously. The ground is covered with straw and sawdust. The smoky smell of burning fat and meat comes out of the kitchen and makes you absolutely starving. You look around for the tapper, the innkeeper, and you lock eyes with a tall, scowling blonde woman. She comes over and asks you what you're after and you realize she is the tapper. You ask for beer, and if there's a pot on the stove, she tells you there's rabbit stew, and you nod hungrily. She is curt and seems unfriendly at first, 
but after fetching your beer and shouting your order to someone, she comes back and a smile suddenly cracks the hardness of her face as she places the tankard in front of you. She asks you why you've come to Amstelvredam. You tell her about your pilgrimage, but leave out your involvement with the CODs. Apparently she takes a liking to you because she starts to tell you stuff about the town and the pilgrimage. She is a real porter, she says, a citizen of the city, and has lived here her entire life. Yeah, she says, I am a real Amstelvredamer. I was born in the Kremenus and now live in Vinmolerzeide. I've been here since the good old days, before all these pilgrims and foreigners arrived. You mention how she must be doing good business right now, especially considering the crowds of merrymakers entering the city this morning, who already seemed like they'd been having a bit to drink. She fires up, Tcha! Those rats setting up inns outside the town, they're scamming us. I have to pay such high taxes for my herberg in the city for every drink I sell here. But those lochetappers try to get away from it by setting up outside the walls. She spits on the ground. You quickly change the topic and mention how you've come to see the Heilige Stade. Her eyes light up and she begins to tell you all about it. You learn that five years prior, the chapel built on the site of the miracle had fallen into grave disrepair. And so the city council had taken it over, agreeing to fund its restoration. For this reason, the miraculous host is not being housed there anymore. Instead, it can be found in the outer kerk, the old church, near the harbour on the other side of town. The tapper starts telling you about the men who run the city, the rich burkers and the merchants. While the councilmen take their duty to protect the sanctity of the Eucharist very seriously, they also see the pilgrimage as a, an opportunity for income. Income for the city, of course, and they wish to promote it. She once again quietly mutters her disdain for the influx of pilgrims. You order another beer and she smiles and happily goes to fetch it, coming back with the stew as well. You feel a bit guilty being one of these tourists she is complaining about, but she takes your money happily and continues to talk as you search for a chunk of rabbit meat in the bowl that she hands you. Tomorrow is the celebration day of the miracle across the town, and in recent years the council has expanded this to allow for a city-wide feast to be held. Also for two weeks around March 12th, Amstelradamas are allowed to hold sacrament markets, selling souvenirs relating to the miracle, to relics and other miraculously affiliated products. Generally, she says, the miracle brings all kinds of people here. It's completely changed the place. She then lowers her voice. She leans closer to you and she points out a quiet, solemn-looking man sitting in the corner, clasping a small piece of metal on his necklace, staring at it. See that man? He accidentally killed someone when he ran over him with a horse. As punishment, he's been told he needs to go on a pilgrimage first here, and then to Jerusalem. He needs to bring back a pilgrim badge from both places as proof that he has completed his sentence. Then she laughs and shakes her head. These people. She's feeling comfortable enough for you to ask her something you've been wondering about. You point out the girl sitting at the table and begin to ask if they are prostitutes, but the scowl reappears on her face as quickly as it had left, and she stops you in your tracks. We're a respectable establishment here, there's none of that. Those ladies are here for the same reason as everyone else to drink and be merry. You look down, embarrassed, and mutter an apology, but then she laughs uproariously, and you look up again. The rear canal on the old side, she says, and tilts her head in the direction of the plaza. She chuckles again and winks at you. You'll find whatever you need there. You feel your cheeks go red, so you shake your head in denial and look away. You had always thought that Amstelradam had represented holy sanctity, but you were learning that there was much more to it than that. The tapper acts like nothing out of the ordinary was said and goes on to tell you one last thing, that a great procession will take place tomorrow in homage to Christ and his miracle here, and especially to all the money it brings in. You smile and drain your tankard. That is something that you cannot miss. By now it is early evening and so after those few beers you give thanks and decide to explore. 
As you walk further up the dike, you notice that it has quietened down somewhat. You hear the sounds coming from inside the houses as families prepare for supper, prayer, and bed. After a few minutes, you come up to the market square, the plaza. There are a few other people walking around, and many of them are heading towards the magnificent newer kerk, the new church, directly in front of you, and completed only a decade prior. As you are taking it in, its bells begin to ring, calling evening mass. You take the coincidence as a sign from God and make to go inside, but as you move, you begin to distinguish other bells, not far away, and you reason that they must be coming from the old church, on the other side of the plaza, past the large wooden slice. That is where, according to the tapper at your herberg, the miraculous host is kept. Surely this is where God is directing you. So you walk over to your right, past the building that must be the town hall, given the size and prominence of it, and come to the very centre of town, a dam on the river with two slouches in it. One allows boats to pass through, the other only allows excess water from the city to flush out into the sea. The slouches connect the two banks of the river mouth and prevent salty water from the eye getting into the fresh river water which is used to feed the agricultural lands in the south of the town. It is thanks to the construction of this dam that the existence of everything you've seen today is possible. You walk over it and turn left up a street called the Varmastrat. The other bells are getting louder and louder and soon you come to a small path that leads down from the dike to the church that you are looking for. There is a large crowd already heading into the building. You join them and find a seat with the other ordinary folk at the back and to the side. You see a group of very esteemed looking men and their wives and children being seated at the front. They are all wearing fine clothes. The women have colourful long dresses over thin linen smocks. Some of them exhibit a fashion that you have not seen anywhere else, with slashes cut through the outer layers of their clothing to reveal brightly coloured fabrics beneath. A few amongst them have immaculate fur over their shoulders. The men all bear great bulky black headwear, which they take off as they sit down, revealing smartly cut hair to match their finely trimmed beards and moustaches. You realise that these rich and powerful looking folk are members of the city's patriciate. You look around the crowd. There are others also wearing fine clothes and furs, but they're not sitting in such prominent positions, so close to the pulpit. These must be the wealthy, but not as politically influential individuals. The crowd becomes a bit more rough around the edges as you scan back and out and you see also a fair few rugged-looking sailor types to the exterior of the flock. You stop to take it in as you look up at the great hall of the church. Great stone archways run down the length of the hall, and great wooden rafters extend across between them. Hanging down from the ribbed wooden ceiling, there are magnificent chandeliers with hundreds of candles whose light flickers and dances off the tall arched stained glass windows to the side. This creates a myriad of colours on the pale stone walls, which you think is simply divine. The power of the church within, and the sacredness of the miraculous host that it contains is evident to you from the beginning. During the Mass, you try to follow the Latin as best you can, and recognise some of the Psalms. Afterwards, you are feeling His love and grace, like never before. When you come out of the church, you leave another small donation in the wooden box by the door, having been told that this too will go to restoring the holy site of the miracle. Outside again, you decide to continue on in the direction you were going, but after walking only a short distance, over one bridge and a block further, you come to another canal, and already the atmosphere is decidedly less spiritual than from where you'd just come. This canal is called the Akterbergval the rear canal. You notice that there are suddenly many people around and they are not churchgoers. There is a drunken revelry in the air. You walk up to a bridge and stand on it to look down the length of the canal into the darkness. The torches of countless taverns and alehouses stretch down as far as you can see and now you notice how many women are walking along by it on their own. This is the rear canal on the old side. 
where the tapper had told you such services were tolerated. Only a short walk from the church. You chuckle, and then you feel guilty and you cross yourself, frantically. You decide to walk down the canal, steadfastly ignoring making eye contact with any of the salacious women you pass. You are here for a pilgrimage, and already have too many sins to atone for. You don't need any more. You must keep your head down as you walk along the canal anyway, for fear of losing your footing on the muddy path and falling into the fetid, disgusting water. There are drunkards everywhere, and you see this happen to more than one of them as you walk by. You hear the sounds of a brawl erupting from within one establishment, and all of this makes you decide it is probably best to head back to the hammock at your herberg. So you carry on, walking along the canal, but before you even realize, the atmosphere has changed again, and once more quite drastically. This end of the canal is noticeably far quieter, and now there is almost nobody around, and certainly no drunkards. You stop and look closely at some of the buildings, and realize by the inscriptions and the insignia above many of the doors that they must be convents and nunneries. You cross yourself again and carry on, thinking, this town sure is strange. What with its mix of religious piety and tolerated sinfulness and love of commerce. The next day, you wake up early, excited, and proceed to stand in line to visit the Heilige Stade, the holy site where the miracle had happened, the destination of your pilgrimage this whole time. While in line, you struck up a conversation with the lady in front of you who has four children in tow. She tells you how they come from a town called Horn, and recently their boat had capsized and she had been certain they were all going to drown. She had begged and prayed and promised to visit this site should they all survive. Well, she points at all four of her kids. We all survived and so here we are. You tell her that you heard they have a register where they record all the miracles associated with this holy place. She gets even more excited at that and promises she will tell them inside. Pilgrims have a special entrance into the chapel that has been built on the site where the miracle occurred. You bow your head solemnly as you enter, but then you can't help but look up and take it in. The tapper was right. This church does need repair. Before you know it though, you are next in line to approach the altar. Even though the host is not here, you still feel the deep importance of the place and whisper a few intonations between yourself and the Virgin. On the way out, you have the chance to buy a pilgrim badge, a metal pendant that verifies you're completing the pilgrimage. You are asked again for a donation and although your money is running out, you can't help but buy the pilgrim badge and throw some money into the box. With reverence, of course. There is notable excitement in the air when you come back out, and you join the crowd walking up the dike as everyone heads now for the old church. You follow the same path as what you'd taken the night before and find a position amongst the crowd surrounding the church. When it begins, the procession is like nothing you have ever seen. The craft guilds appear first, in their hundreds with so many masters and apprentices, Amongst them, they carry colourful painted placards bearing slogans or the colours of the guild. Others carry paintings of their favourite saints. They are followed by girls and holy women representing the Blessed Virgin. And then you see a large cart holding a great painted wooden dragon on its top. It is followed closely by a man on horseback dressed as St. George there to slay the dragon. Everything is incredibly festive. You notice some naughtiness in the procession as well, which you are coming to understand seems to be a fundamental part of this town's character. Hundreds of people appear dressed as devils, and they playfully terrorize the onlookers and particularly young children. Next to come are the militias. They raise their arms alongside their banners and are accompanied by a boy's choir and priests and a monk carrying a great wooden crucifix. And then... A solemnity descends upon the festive crowd, a palpable hush. People in white emerge and drift along the procession mysteriously. Their arrival signals that the miraculous host, contained within a resplendent crystal receptacle, will be next. And this explains the hush that you had noticed embraced by the crowd. 
The four mares appear, themselves resplendent in their furs and their black-dyed stockings and their big hats. Traditionally, each year, Amsterdam's elite would vote in three mares, and then those three would elect the fourth mayor from those three that had been elected the year before. However, with John of Bavaria taking control, he had ignored this process and simply selected all four mayors himself. This ensured that the council was fully in cod hands, and in this procession, the hands of these cod mares hold up a large, silken, ornamental canopy called a baldachin. Beneath it, the old church parish priest carries the holy sacrament in its crystal container. You hear the whispers of a thousand prayers come out of the lips of those all around you. After it has passed, there is a brief moment, almost reflection, before the crowd erupts once more in excited cheers and frivolity. From that point on, the procession is open for the everyday folk to join in, and this is done with great revelry. The throng grows larger and larger as you all move through the town towards the holy site. There is singing and drinking and shouting and laughing and music coming from the pipes, horns and strings of people all through the city. In the backdrop, the bells ring continuously from all the churches. Truly, it is like nothing you have ever experienced, nor can imagine ever experiencing again. Summer has come and gone, and you have found yourself settling quite easily into life in Amstelvredam. The cod takeover of the town has meant opportunity for those of you who fought on that side, and you are fast-tracked for town citizenship, which you receive by oath in September. Your connections and ability to read have also landed you a job as a clerk for one of the town's bailiffs. Furthermore, you found a small house to live in, in Bindvake, the area on the south side of the city near Hetzpau. The same year, within the greatest struggle of the Hook and Cod Wars, Utrecht had declared war on Amstelredam. John of Bavaria had ordered defences be increased. Amstelredam's job as a border city was to stop anyone getting into Amstel land so they could march towards Leiden, which he had recently succeeded in laying to siege and taking from the supporters of Jacqueline of Bavaria. So Amstelredam is on high alert against her forces trying to take it back. Because of your COD connections and military experience, you have also been given a position in the Skuterai, one of the militias that protects the town. Early one morning in late September, you are woken suddenly by the urgent calling of bells warning of an attack on the city. Together with hundreds of other militiamen, you jump out of your bed, grab what arms and armor you can and move to your designated assembly point. There has been movement in the meadows out beyond the Rechelier's port not far away. The people of Utrecht are attacking. You are ordered to form a defensive line and take position next to a pair of cannons positioned under a windmill on the Amstel Dyke. You look out in the dark distance. To your left, the rising sun is showing its first glimmering approach, but it is not enough to allow you to see very far. But then, deep from within the grayness before you, you see the first faint hints of dark moving masses. You shout, that you see them. You are all told to hold. The cannoneers have packed their shot and they are ready. Now, everybody can see the attackers. A body of perhaps 300 people rushing towards the Reculeers Cloister, a cloister which sits just outside the city walls. Schiet! Fire! Somebody shouts and you brace for the explosion from the cannon next to you. But nothing happens. The command comes again, prolonged this time. Schiet! But still nothing. You look over at the men working it, and they are frantically poking around and shouting at each other. You realize that the cannon has malfunctioned. You look up again and see the Utrexes are getting closer and closer. You can hear them shouting now. Without waiting for an order, you abandon your post and run looking for a captain. You find a guy called Tiedemann Simonzone, one of the city burkers, and desperately tell him that the cannon is not working. He grabs your arm, looks you in the eye, and tells you to follow him. You chance a quick look over the ramparts, and you see the enemy is gathering before the gate, but they are faltering also due to the efficiency of the town's defense, as people have started to shoot down at them. You run with Tiedemann to another cannon and begin hauling the shots into place. 
He starts packing the gun as quickly as possible, and together you move it to face the direction of the attack. You stand back as Tiedemann holds up a burning wick. Schiet, he says quietly, almost to himself, and holds it to the touch hole. You plug your ears and there is a huge explosion, but something feels wrong. And when you look up, you see the gun recoiled and a giant hole blasted through its back end. Tiedemann is laying, screaming in agony on the ground. One of his arms is a shattered mess of blood and bones and burning flesh. You shout for help and quickly other men appear. Together you form a makeshift stretcher and lifting the writhing man as gently but quickly as possible, you take him to find a barber surgeon. When you appear from his side hours later, his arm has been chopped off and cauterized and he is still passed out from the agony, but he is alive. You find out that the Utrex's attack was a complete failure, and they had quickly fled back to the, from whence they'd come, after being met by the fierce Amstel-Radam defenders. In the future, a tower will be built nearby this site, called Zweich Utrecht, the silencing of Utrecht. For months, that event is the talk of the town, and you all prepare for another attack. In January 1421, in recognition for his service to the city during battle, Tiedemann Simonzone is officially declared in an act of the council to be Heerfart, Schout and Wachtfrei. That is to say, he was no longer bound to military duty. He no longer had to pay certain taxes and he no longer had to take part in the city watch. Getting off Schotfrei, scot-free. Bet you didn't know that had to do with medieval taxes. In the middle of March, news spreads through town that Jacqueline of Bavaria has left for England. This is a shock, but it means that you won't have to be fighting her forces again anytime soon. Now, this is what everyone drinking in the Herberge is talking about. Could this mean the end of the war for good? What if she brings an English army to the Low Countries? What if she marries and has a child with the English royal family? This is all everybody can talk about. It is Easter Sunday, 1421. In the morning you walk up the dike towards the plaza and go to mass at the new church. It's great bells drawing in worshippers from that whole side of the city. After the service you spend a few minutes watching the tide of people streaming out of the church and dispersing throughout the town. Well-dressed couples heading north up the dike towards the Windmolerseide. Young children chasing each other over the plaza, weaving in between where every other day the calf market is held. A man stands on the corner playing a flute while a drunk dances around him. A group of behind women in plain robes chat amongst each other as they head back down the dike to the south where they live, in a courtyard known as the Bechainov, the Begrinage, not far from your own house in Binvag. You look over at the boats lying in the Dumrock, the body of water that heads up towards the harbour, Het Ai, and amongst it all, the town hall stands tall, the symbol of this proud town's independence. As you stand there in the crisp morning light, you feel a swelling pride. You have been here for just over a year now, and you are really starting to feel like you are at home. A beautiful young woman walks nearby with her parents, and as she passes you, she catches your eye, smiles, and quickly looks the other way. Your head is full of dreams and plans for the future as you pass through the throngs of people heading back towards home. But that night, disaster strikes. You're woken from your sleep by commotion on the street. There are screams and panic shouts that get louder and louder, and amongst it all, you hear someone screaming, Flamen! Flames! You open your window and instead of the usual pitch blackness one could expect at this time of night, everything on the street is lit by a flickering orange glow and thick, acrid smoke hangs ominously in the air. As you look up the street, huge flames are snaking through the sky, coming from somewhere near the plaza, and a deluge of sparks comes raining down. You see the thatched roof of a house not far away up the street catching fire and you are suddenly filled with dread as it dawns upon you that almost everything in this small and crowded city is built of wood. You quickly gather up any precious belonging you can find, throw them in the satchel 
and run outside. There on the street, you find pandemonium. People frantically running in all directions, hauling children over their shoulders or screaming their names and searching for their faces between the dirt and the smoke. As a militiaman, you run to your assembly point, dumping your satchel in a spot that you hope you'll remember. Other militiamen are already there, and wooden buckets are being handed around. Quickly, you are directed to one of the many lines being formed. Soon, hundreds of men and women have been arranged to pass buckets between the canal side and the fire. For hours and hours, you do your bit, being rotated in and out of different positions, barely given a break. People collapse throughout, through exhaustion, smoke inhalation, or both. Blisters appear and burst on your hands and then appear again as you hold bucket after bucket and it takes everything you have to keep going. Each and every one of you fights on through, alone with your pain and fear, but together with each other in withstanding it. Eventually the flames are extinguished, but not before they could extract their wicked toll on the city. Fully one third of the town has turned to ash overnight. You learn that the fire seems to have started somewhere near the new church on the Plaza, and from there raced south, down the dike, devastating your entire neighbourhood of Binvag. The new church is gone, the town hall is gone, the guest house where you first tried to stay is gone, the Binvag report where you came into town is no more, the Heilig is badly damaged, even worse than before. When you return to the site of your own home, you find nothing remains except the blackened ends of the foundation posts sticking out of the ash-strewn muddy ground. A woman nearby weeps as her daughter clings to her leg and a man's blackened corpse is pulled out from under some stone rubble nearby and although you do not recognize him, you are certain that the woman does. You're not sure how you feel. Honestly, you're just numb. Feeling like... Surely this is a nightmare from which you will soon wake up. As you kick through the rubble, something catches your eye. A small, round, metallic object. You pick it up. It is still hot to the touch, but you are relieved. You'd search for it briefly before having to flee and are happy to see that it has survived. You protect your hand with your shirt and wipe the soot off of it. It is the pilgrim badge which you had bought when you first arrived in the town. It has melted somewhat, but you can still just make out the shape of a nun pulling the unburnt sacrament from the fire. You say a prayer of thanks that you have survived this night. You say prayers for those who did not, and for those who will mourn them. And then you voice your gratitude for Amstelradam, and for the people of this town. In this catastrophe, you stood by each other, and you were able to overcome the horrendous fire. Much like the sacrament, the city had been engulfed in flames, but the city does not exist in its roads and rafters, or bricks and canal, but in its people. And although many of those people have been lost tonight, most are still here. Like the sacrament, you have survived the fire, and together, you will rebuild. You might not know it now, but Amstelvredam's greatest days are still ahead of it. What you have just listened to has been our attempt to explore what life in medieval Amsterdam may have been like. Truth be told, this is no easy thing to do. A third of the town was engulfed by the fire of 1421 that we just described, and so many records from before that date were destroyed as well. To compound the lack of information, only 31 years later an even worse fire would rip through the town again, destroying three quarters of it. After this fire, ordinance would demand that houses had to be built from brick. A few exceptions to this still exist today, which are an old pub on a street called the Zedike, and a house in the still-existing Bechainov, where the Beguine laywomen lived, who we briefly mentioned. So what this wooden Amsterdam looked like exactly, pre-1421, is unknown, but we've tried to construct it based on a general understanding of medieval Dutch towns, archaeological findings in Amsterdam, 
and by heavily relying on the work of Teo Bucker. We will put links to the many wonderful resources he has created onto our website. We also consulted chronicles which included descriptions of the battle against the Utrechters in which Tiedemann Simonsson's arm was actually lost in service of the city, as well as descriptions from slightly later on in the town's history. For this reason, take a lot of what we have talked about today with as much salt as you could sell at a medieval salt market. The purpose of this episode was to try and get away from the top-heavy political battles that we have spoken so much about recently, to try and get an understanding of what life may have been like for one of the many ordinary people who lived at the time, even if we lived it through the lens of someone who definitely didn't exist. There are certainly a few frailties in this historical fiction. It was much more difficult to become a citizen of the town than how we portrayed. In order to buy Porterrecht, you would have needed to pay exorbitant amounts of money to show that you were not going to end up destitute and a burden on the town. Some families lived inside towns for generations without ever actually becoming citizens. It takes also a slight jump of faith and imagination to think a farmer boy in Kenemerland could read, but it is not completely out of the question. The brethren and eventually sisters of the common life were a movement of austere, pious, and dedicated lay people which started in the Low Countries around the 1390s. They started in a town, Defender, in a really important area called the Ophrstick that we have not spoken much about at all. They were dedicated to education amongst all people, and this is arguably what laid the groundwork for Renaissance ideas and, above all else, humanism to get such a strong foothold and to thrive in the Low Countries much later on. So yeah, there were schools and people teaching kids to read. We think it is plausible enough to have fitted comfortably into our narrative, but also mainly because we wanted to mention the brethren of the common life. And yeah, based on popular demand, give a shout out to the Ophrisel region, the Ophristict. We'll probably talk about the brethren of the common life in more detail at some point in the future, but we also make no promises. The procession of the sacrament is based on an account written by Valich Seifertz, a pharmacist who lived through the latter half of the 15 and into the 1600s. This would be a time when Amsterdam went from being Catholic to Protestant, and old Valich did much the same. In 1604, he wrote a book called Romish Mysteries, in which he described the miracle procession from his memories of seeing it as a child. We borrowed heavily from that description, although it came from more than a hundred years after the time period we were attempting to describe. We have to keep that in mind. It's just the closest that we could get. We also know how Amsterdamers do street parties, even today, and we simply don't think the general vibe of it would have changed too dramatically. Amsterdam would solve much of its fire issues for good in the 1600s with a bloke called Jan van der Heide, but you can probably tell by the fact that it's taken us over 10 episodes to get out of the 1300s that we are a fair way off talking about him. Suffice it to say, the fire in 1421 and the second one in 1452 left a massive mark on Amsterdam, how it would grow and change from that point on. Before we leave, we want to say a huge, massive thank you to all of you for listening to the show and for interacting with us via social media and email. It's the most acceptable distance that we can now talk. We understand that everyone in the world is going through a bizarre moment right now with many uncertainties ahead, and we're glad that at least we are all in this together. If History of the Netherlands is able to give you a bit of company throughout this period of social isolation, then we will go to bed at night satisfied with the work that we are doing. But we want to give a special thanks to those of you who also support us on Patreon. For this reason, big shout-outs need to go to Ali Bowie-Smith and Thais Castellane for joining the Sphagnum Squad. Thais, thanks for the love, mate, even though the bike bell in the intro has scared you in the past. At least now you're hopefully working from home, so you won't have that issue anymore. Anyway, 
Tais, 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 tais. Stay tais, 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 tais. We want to send as much love as possible to the ridiculously generous people who, at this moment of crisis, have upped their pledges. For those of us who have lost our entire incomes throughout this, seeing the level of support shown by different people around the world is a truly inspiring thing, and it means more than we can possibly say to you. Thank you all so much. Until next time, doi! Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You can get detailed show notes at our website, historyofthenetherlands.com. From there, you'll be able to find other podcasts and projects that we've created. This is a production of Republic of Amsterdam Radio. Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for season three of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.